0: You're listening to the Informal Bible Study, a casual and applicational look at the scriptures. I'm John Stonge, and it's great to have you with us today. In just a few moments, we're going to be looking at a variety of scriptures from the Gospels, and we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus treated outcasts like family. We're taking a brief break from our study of Romans, but we'll pick that up in just a few weeks. And starting today and for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the fact that Christ is our Savior, and we're going to be looking at the things that he did during the course of his earthly ministry that illustrated his saving nature. And so today we're talking about the fact that Jesus took outcasts and he treated them like family. But before we take a look at that, I just wanted to share something really quickly with you that I think is timely for this time of year. As we finish up a calendar year and begin making preparations for the next year, I know one of the things that many of us have as a goal is the desire to grow in our faith with Jesus Christ. And we have a resource that we believe will help you do that. It's our Desire Jesus 365-day, one-year devotional, and it's available on our website, desirejesus.com. And I wanted to make mention of it to you now in case you weren't aware of it, because it's something that you want to have in place before you get into this coming year. I've discovered that if I don't make plans, things tend not to happen. (laughs) So if you're looking to make plans to grow in your walk with Christ, if you're looking for a devotional resource that's geared toward helping you strengthen that walk and grow in faith, I believe this will be a good one for you. I hope it's something that you'll check out. Again, you can find it in our bookstore at DesireJesus.com. Dot com. It's very prominently featured right there on the page, and we hope it'll be a useful resource to you or to anyone you choose to give it to as a gift this coming year. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, today we're looking at various portions of Scripture from the Gospels, and we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus treated outcasts like family. Let's take a look. So today we're transitioning from our series in Romans. We're going to pick up our series in Romans as we get back into the month of January. But for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about Christ's role as our Savior, as the one who saves, as the one who rescues, as the one who redeems. And today, we're going to be looking at a variety of Scriptures today. But before we take a look at the Scripture, I want to, uh, I guess, just share an event with you or an occurrence that you'll probably identify with, because something like this has probably happened to you at some point in your life. Uh, during the course of this past week, my son came home from school, and like all, uh, you know, students do, by the way, this is, I don't know if this is a lament or a request for prayer, um, but at, by the end of this coming week, all four of my children will be teenagers at, at the same time. I always wondered what this day was going to be like. By Friday, I will know what happens when they all are in that same stretch. I don't know. I'm always grateful. any Anytime I look at my kids and I'm like, hey, that one's not like I was, and that one's not like I was, I was like, okay, good. <laughs> um, but my son, who is 14, he came home from school the other day, and I was asking him every uh, student's favorite question, right? Don't you just love when your parents are like, hey, how was your day? Right? Nobody likes that question, but you ask it anyway. And so... I asked it, and uh, he was telling me, um, he's like, it was fine for the most part, but he said, something changed that is going to alter the rest of the school year for me. And I said, well, what was it? And he said, well, you know, I'm at a new school this year, and uh, for the past few months I've been enjoying lunch with the same group of people, But now, because of the courses that I'm taking in this next marking period and for the rest of the year, they have to change my schedule and they have to give me a different lunch time, which means all the people, all the friends that I've made that I eat lunch with now, I have a different lunch and we won't be able to eat together for the rest of the year. And he's like, so I I guess that's okay, we still have classes together, but... I won't get to see them. I won't get to hang out with them. He handled it well, but I could tell he was disappointed. And wouldn't you be disappointed if something like that was kind of thrust upon you? It's like, hey, we're changing up your schedule. You can't hang out with your friends anymore. Go make some new ones all over again. I know it'll be fine, but um, can, you, can you remember having that kind of experience when you were growing up? Something like that, that kind of took you out of your element and forced you to maybe try and interact with new people or develop some new friendships or things like that. Maybe you changed schools. I know that right after third grade, I, sw- I switched to a whole new school district. Our family moved, and, and in fourth grade, I had to start all over with all new friends, and I never saw all my other friends. And so for a little bit, I felt like I was a little bit out of place, had to establish some new friendships. It could take a while to do that. Maybe you felt that sort of thing if you experienced... Um, you know, starting college, when you go to college, you don't automatically know everybody that you're attending college with or pe- even people that you're living with in your dorm. Or maybe um, if you, you know, when you think back to when you took your first career job and you're now the new guy or the new girl that's working there and you're trying to get to know everybody and trying to learn the routines and the patterns and everything of your new workplace, and it can be very easy to feel like an outsider or an outcast when you're in that kind of a context. Now, imagine if you lived in a context where you began to feel like no matter what you did, you were never going to be accepted and never welcomed. See, a lot of times when we're in a new context, we have this hope in the back of our mind that, okay, well, it'll take me a little bit to adjust, but I'll develop some new friendships, I'll develop a new routine, I'll I'll get to know some people, I'll be welcomed, I'll be accepted eventually. But imagine if you got to a point where you realize no matter what I do, this type of relationship that I have with others, where I feel like I'm on the outside, it's not going to change. It's not going to get better. For many people, that's the way they would characterize their day-to-day experiences, They feel unloved. They could probably even give you many examples of how they've been treated like they're unwanted or unloved or unaccepted or unappreciated outcasts that are forced to live on the fray of interactions with others. And that was certainly the case during the course of Christ's earthly ministry. And in the context in which he was doing ministry, in the context in which he was living at the time, and he's walking around in and among people, there were those who were considered respectable and admirable people of society, while there were others who were considered unclean or unwanted. But Jesus did not avoid the outcasts. Even though many other people were avoiding them, Jesus did not avoid them. And what he did was he offered himself to them and gave them the opportunity to be part of his family. So what did it look like when Christ did this? And what should we be learning from that kind of example? And how could we begin practicing that kind of pattern or that kind of mindset in the midst of the era that we live in right now? Well, this morning, in just a moment, we're going to be looking at a variety of Scriptures. We're going to start with Mark 2. We're going to jump to Luke 13 and we're going to finish up with Mark chapter 10. But we're going to see in these multiple portions of Scripture that Jesus treated the outcasts like family. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the things that our Savior has done on behalf of those that He's loved. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to come together this morning and to sing songs of praise to you and to enjoy fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to be able to look at your Word together now. And Lord, we know that when we look at your Word, you give us counsel that you invite us to apply to our lives, and often you command us to apply these things to our lives. And so Lord, as we look at the the portions of Scripture that we're looking at today, And as we see how you treated outcasts, the kind of people that others detested, we pray, Lord, that we would learn something about how you have called us to treat others for your glory, but that we would also recognize that we were the outcasts, and you've shown us your love. So we're grateful for these things, and we're we're just praying, Lord, that you'd impress upon our hearts and on our minds a reminder of these things today as we look at your Word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we think of outcasts, there's probably a variety of categories we could put outcasts in, but one of the things that we could see from the first portion of Scripture we're going to be looking at this morning is that Jesus loved the easiest people to hate. Now, I don't know who you'd put in the category of easiest people to hate, but there's probably someone there. I heard someone make mention of a particular sports team just a moment ago. I heard that under your breath. All right, I did that. Did reach here? Hopefully, the mic didn't pick it up. Um, but there are people that, for you and for me, if we just kind of went the direction of our sin nature, our old nature, we would find very easy to hate. And I want to take a look for starters here at Mark chapter two. And in Mark chapter two, we're just going to look at verse fifteen down to verse seventeen. But here you're given an example; we're given an example of some of the easiest people in the context of the times to hate. Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 15, it says this, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let's think about this from a personal standpoint. In this world, there are plenty of people that we may like and we may enjoy spending time with, while there are plenty of, plenty of others that, if we are honest, we're completely transparent, completely honest about it, we might feel somewhat uncomfortable giving our time to certain people. Maybe we're fearful of their bad reputation rubbing off on us, or maybe we aren't comfortable with some of the sights or some of the smells that we might experience if we place ourselves in certain company. Or maybe we feel pressure to not hang out with people of certain backgrounds or ethnicities or faiths or lifestyles. These are the type of things that you and I wrestle with on a day-to-day basis, depending on what your personal biases. is, might be. And there's a little bit of a dilemma that's at play here when we experience that sort of uh, dichotomy going on within us. We are highly influenced by those that we spend the most time with. Wouldn't you agree? I'm highly influenced by those I choose to spend time with. You are highly influenced by those you choose to spend time with for good and for bad. But yet we're also called to be ambassadors of Christ in this world. And whatever you think uh, you know, your identity is or your mission is or whatever it may be, one of the things that Scripture makes very clear is true of you and me in Christ is that we are His representatives. We are His ambassadors. In fact, He's making His plea to this world through you and through me, through your lips and through my lips, through my life and through your life, Christ is making His plea to a fallen world through His ambassadors, us. We represent Him in this world. So that tells me that if we are Christ's ambassadors, we need both His wisdom and we need the protective guidance of the Holy Spirit if we're going to love those who might be the easiest people to hate while also being careful not to adopt certain behaviors or mindsets or attitudes that wouldn't be healthy for us as Christ's ambassadors to adopt. Now, in the context of the the Gospels, as we look at the different things that uh, take place during the course of Christ's earthly ministry, this kind of dilemma would often play out in Christ's interaction with others. So on one hand, you had um, the religious legalistic Pharisees who took great pleasure in burdening people with regulations and with expectations that probably on the surface seemed mostly ethical, yet what they would do is they would stretch the heart and they would stretch the teaching of God's Word in very harsh and inaccurate ways, almost to the point that your heart was provoked to despise God or to despise the Word of God because the Word of God wasn't treated as something refreshing. It was treated as something burdensome, and yet you have Christ saying, wait a second, following me is not meant to be burdensome. And yet you have the Pharisees treating like a walk with God is one of just carrying unca- like burdens that cannot be carried. And on the other hand, you have this group of people, you have the tax collectors, you have the sinners who didn't even bother conveying a sense of religious pretense. You know, at this point, they recognize, listen, we are not going to be accepted by the religious people. We are not going to be the type of people that they ever welcome into their circles. We're never going to be the people that the religious people love. We're never going to be the people that the religious people spend time with. We are those that they will avoid. They will give us dirty looks. They will tell us to get out of their presence, and they will criticize those who spend any time with us. So it's kind of like, why bother? And do you ever get that point in some of your relationships in life where you interact with some people that you realize, you know what, no matter how hard I try, I will never be able to please that person. And what do you do? Eventually, to protect your own heart, you just kind of get to a spot where you're like, I give up, right? Do you ever do that? You ever get to a spot where it's like, I give up with that one. I will never be able to please that person. I give up. And I think many of the people that are referred to as tax collectors and sinners probably got to that point in regard to those who tended to be the more religious people in the culture at the time. They probably just got to the spot where they thought, I'll never be able to please these people, so I give up. It's not even on my list of things I'm even going to bother doing. I'm just going to put it out of my mind. They don't like me, they have nothing good to say about me, and I don't desire to be one of them. And yet, who is the sinless, holy Son of God spending time with in this portion of Scripture? Christ did not appreciate the hard hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. And even at the risk of being chastised by them, the Scripture shows us that Jesus was willing to spend some time socially with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, the tax collectors in particular were hated by many people, particularly tax collectors who were of Jewish background, like Levi was, who is the man hosting the dinner party that's spoken of here in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus had just called, if you read earlier in that chapter, Jesus had just called Levi, who's also known as Matthew, and by the way, this is the same guy that wrote down the Gospel of Matthew. That's that guy. So, definitely did some good stuff with his life, right? But Jesus had just called Levi, or Matthew, as we typically know him, to be his disciple. And in celebration of this fact, as Levi was rejoicing over this, he decides to throw a dinner party. Now, who are you going to invite to this dinner party after you've just been called as a disciple by Christ? Well, he invites his friends, his established friends. And who are his established friends? Well, other tax collectors and sinners. And he invites them to come to this dinner party. So he invites the other outcasts to come and to have dinner and to get to meet Jesus, who took the time to talk to Levi and who took the time to value him enough to say, hey, come and be my disciple. And Levi said, yeah. I'll do that. Let me introduce you to some of my friends. So he has this dinner party, invites all the other outcasts. But again, keep in mind, Levi was hated by many, many people in that community because they viewed him not just as a rip-off artist, but also a traitor. And what I mean by that is this. In many cases, when a Jewish person in that culture became a tax collector for the Roman government, they were hated on two fronts. First off, they were hated because um, they typically, to, to earn an income, they were allowed to take a commission legally of whatever taxes they collected, but the typical practice for tax collectors was that they would take a ton extra from people that they were taxing, and they would pad their pockets with overtaxing you, give the Roman government their share, but then keep a ridiculous and unfair portion for themselves. And they tended to become rather wealthy through ripping other people off. So right there, that's probably going to annoy many people. And you and I know that if somebody was ripping off any one of us, we would take great annoyance with that. I would be annoyed with that. You would be annoyed with that. That's not something that should surprise us, that people would be annoyed with guys like Levi and others. But there was another reason that uh, Levi kind of had two strikes against him. The Jewish people resented the fact that the Roman government occupied their homeland. They didn't like it. And they daydreamed often about the day that one would come and overthrow Roman rule. And there had been multiple uprisings to try and overthrow Roman rule that had been unsuccessful. And here you have Levi, a man who's Jewish by birth, and he's partnering with the Roman occupiers. He's partnering with this government that seems like it's oppressively overtaking their country, their homeland. So he was annoyed. The people didn't like him for multiple reasons. They didn't like him because they thought he was a rip-off artist, and they didn't like him because they thought he was a traitor. Like he had betrayed his own people. But Jesus looks at Levi, and he calls him unto himself. And he was willing to eat a meal with him, and transform his heart, and send him into this world as a new man. And there are many things that you and I know about Jesus that we would not have known had not Levi been inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those things down in the Gospel of Matthew. So you have Levi, this guy who was once a disreputable sinner, now cleansed by Jesus and transformed into an apostle of Christ And again, keep in mind that in that context, it would have been very socially acceptable and even applauded if Jesus avoided outcasts like Levi. It would have been applauded. It would have been um, accepted by others if Jesus avoided him. But That's not what Christ did. Levi was one of the guys that would have been easiest to hate in that culture, and yet Jesus showed him love. And Jesus wasn't worried about Levi's reputation rubbing off on him. Jesus didn't seem to sweat here when when you look at what he says and what he does. He doesn't sweat whether or not people would hate him too if he was seen with Levi. So not only was he willing to eat with Levi, but he was also willing to invite him to be part of his inner circle of friends and ministry partners, the disciples, the apostles. So when we look at a portion of Scripture like this, I think it's very helpful and instructive for us to ask ourselves, all right, what does this look like in my context and in my life? What is Christ trying to teach me from how He interacted with other people? How does this impact my ability to be His ambassador on this earth? What am I supposed to learn from what Jesus demonstrated here? And so the way I ask this question in my own mind, it's like this. Who does this world hate that Jesus has taught me And taught us to love. Who does this world hate that Christ has taught us to love? And as He formulates that answer in my mind and in my heart, and as He formulates that answer in your mind and in your heart, the follow up then is are we willing to be seen with them? Are we willing to eat meals with them? Are we willing to call them our friends? Or do we care more about the smug opinions of insecure and self righteous people? Now, I'm not going to lie and say that there's never been a time in my life where I, have, you know, where I, where I didn't care about um, you know, the opinions of smug, self-righteous people. But again, you know what the Lord's shown me over time, and I'm sure He's shown many of you this as well? Self-righteous people tend to be very insecure people. And typically, the most critical people that I meet in my life tend to be the most insecure, self-righteous people. It all goes hand in hand. This is how you, what you can tell someone's insecure about in their own life. Typically, you can tell what people are insecure about by what they criticize the most. It's true. And it's like they're trying to like cast everything on somebody else, all attention over there, so that no one's looking right here. And so in this context you have the self-righteous you know supposedly zealously religious people of the culture criticizing Jesus for enjoying a meal with Matthew. And effectively what are they revealing? They're revealing their insecurity about their own righteousness. Because their whole sense of righteousness is based on this like this idea of trying to stack up to win God's approval through their efforts and through their works. And the longer they did that, the more they probably recognized deep down, this isn't working. And so their insecurity is on full display, and Christ doesn't buy into it. And He joyfully enjoys that meal with the tax collectors and the sinners. And those that want to criticize have the privilege to hang out on the outside, slinging their arrows but not enjoying food or fellowship with the one who came to rescue, save, and redeem them. Well, what else does Scripture tell us about Christ's interaction with outcasts? There's another interesting portion of Scripture I want to bring up for us, and that's from Luke chapter 13. Look with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 10. And in this context, we could see that Jesus, not only does He show respect or love to those that are hated, But here in this context, he shows respect to those who were disrespected intentionally in the culture. Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 10, it says this. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath Untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. not that a beautiful portion of Scripture? I love that that segment from Luke's Gospel. Now, admittedly, dealing with physical infirmities can be one of the most difficult things that we face on this earth. Physical limitations can feel embarrassing. Uh, They can feel discouraging. I have a good friend whose son has muscular dystrophy. And not long ago, his son asked him this question. Imagine being asked this question. His son came up to him and he said, Dad, Why can't I run like the other kids? Why can't I run like the other other kids? That's a hard question to have to hear. And I imagine that's an even more difficult condition to have to live through like this son finds himself trying to live through. And in hearing that question, or in hearing about that question, I should say, I sense that my friend's son may have been feeling somewhat disrespected by his peers. Why can't I run like the other kids? But what do we see Jesus doing in Luke chapter 13? We see Jesus showing respect to the disrespected. And in Luke 13, starting with verse 10, we're told that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And he was doing this on the Sabbath day. And apparently, when you look at some of the crowds that would gather when Jesus was speaking... Many of the people really enjoyed listening to Christ's teaching. Some listened to criticize, for sure, but others were listening out of curiosity, and others were listening with very open hearts. And so you had people listening to Christ's teaching. Christ taught with clarity. He taught with authority. He taught with compassion. And the people could sense that as Christ was communicating. And what he was doing is he was helping people understand the heart of God and the truth of Scripture. And he would bring clarity to these things, many of which the people were curious about. And among those listening to what Jesus taught on this particular day, Scripture tells us that there was a woman who for 18 years had been severely bent over. What were you doing 18 years ago? 18 years ago. So 18 years ago would have been the year 2000. Well, 18 years ago, my wife and I were welcoming our first child into this world. Uh, 18 years ago... This is a sad reality, but this is true, and this just kind of occurred to me. Eighteen years ago, I bought this shirt. That is true. I really did. At the Altoona Mall, I bought this shirt. It actually might be 18 and a half years old. It held up well, right? But that's kind of amazing. Um, Maybe miraculous. But... um, 18 years ago, you know, some of you are like, all right, 18 years ago I was busy being born. 18 years ago I was learning to walk. 18 years ago I was eating solid food. Some of you even said, you know, 18 years ago I have no idea what I was doing 18 years ago. It's long enough, it's long enough that, you know, I, is anyone here still driving the same car you were driving 18 years ago? Nobody, right? Nobody, not a single person. I didn't suspect that you would be. Um, how many of you still live the same place you lived 18 years ago? Like, not even a third Okay, Not even a third of us lived the same place we lived 18 years ago. 18 years, decent amount of time. Can you imagine being stooped over for 18 years, unable to to uh, straighten yourself up? For 18 years, almost two decades. It's a decent amount of time, and the Scripture gives us that specific detail. It says for 18 years, effectively, she's been bent over. She's severely bent over. It's noticeable. It impacts just her general comfort in her day-to-day life. Impacts the way people look at her. She couldn't stand up straight, so she's experiencing pain. She's experiencing limitations. She's probably experiencing the unflattering stares of those who could not identify with her kind of experience. And while others may not have been showing her the kind of respect that they should have been, Jesus reached into her life. And he shows her respect in this portion of Scripture. We're told here that Jesus called out this woman. And he declared that she was free from her infirmity. Then he laid his hands on her and he healed her in front of all these people. So they're seeing something that's clearly the work of God right there in front of them. She stands up straight. What does the Scripture tell us she does as soon as she begins to stand up straight? She stands up straight and she rejoices by giving praise to God for the healing. First time in 18 years she's able to stand up straight. That is a seminal moment in her life. This is a moment that she's rejoiced. This is the type of thing that she probably even stopped dreaming about because it just didn't seem possible. So at this point, she's probably just learning to cope. It's not even so much about dreaming about standing up straight. It's just hoping that maybe she doesn't deal with more pain or that her hunch doesn't become more pronounced. But she can now stand up straight. She begins praising God for this miracle. And you would have thought that everyone who witnessed this kind of miracle taking place right there in their midst would have rejoiced with her, and maybe even would have joined in with giving God praise. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. The Scripture here tells us that the ruler of the synagogues so is obviously somebody of, um, of notoriety in that context, somebody that was probably used to being respected by others, Um, and by the way, I think, at least in my mind, I think he was probably jealous of the attention people gave Jesus. When Jesus was, would speak, I think he was probably thinking along the lines of, how come, uh, how come nobody makes such a fuss when I, when I share some thoughts and when I have things to say, right? He's jealous of Christ. He's critical of this woman and he decides to express his displeasure with this miracle verbally. And I think he's actually thinking that he's got the chops, right? That he's got the credibility with this group of people that they would actually look at him and maybe agree with him and kind of say, yeah, you know what? You're right. This could have been done on any other day of the week. Why today? So he's critical. He he expresses here his displeasure with this miracle. So we're told that the synagogue ruler, he criticizes the fact that this miracle took place on the Sabbath when he says this could have been done on any other day. But isn't it a shame that this man obviously didn't understand God's heart in designating a Sabbath day? You look at God's reasoning for designating a Sabbath day. The Lord created the Sabbath in part to show mankind mercy. It was a day for rest, a day to recuperate, a day to just sit and reflect on who God is. Shouldn't an act of mercy be celebrated, not condemned, on a day like that? You know, when I look at at an event like that, and again, when I think about my friend's son, I can't imagine a critical word being spoken if my friend's child was healed miraculously on one day over another. It's like, who cares? Rejoice in the fact that a miraculous healing has taken place. But here, in this context, you have this man publicly in front of the crowds disrespecting this woman and disrespecting Jesus because he doesn't understand the depth of God's mercy. read something recently that I want to show you, and one part of it is somewhat graphic, but it's not too graphic to show. In the aftermath of World War One, so when you think of World War I, which was uh, just slightly over a hundred years ago now, World War I many people consider the first war to utilize many of the things that we consider to be a regular part of modern warfare so you know in World War One, you have a lot of machines doing the fighting, you have uh, guns that are designed to do a considerable amount of damage you also have um, you know, war, like gas warfare and things like that, trench warfare taking place, um, things of that nature. You see, quite common during World War I, and as a result, some of the injuries were much more severe. Some of the injuries were much more gruesome. And during World War I, many of the men returned home, if they lived, with severe disfiguring. Injuries, including injuries, many of them to their faces. Let me show you a picture here. Look at this man's face on the left. This is a picture taken after World War I, and that's some of the injuries that he received as a soldier fighting in that war. Completely altered his face, completely damaged his face. It was said that the soldiers that also lost their sight tended to fare a little bit better than those that came back with their sight, because those that had their sight and major disfigurement could clearly see their disfigured faces in mirrors and could catch the startled glances of people when they would walk in public and people are staring at them or talking about them. And so there were some people that decided to respond to this need out of compassion. And one of the people that decided to respond to this need was a woman named Anna Coleman Ladd. Let me show you her picture. Anna Coleman Ladd, by the way, that's the same guy from the previous picture. Anna Coleman Ladd was a sculptor. And during that era, what she started doing to help these soldiers that were coming back with major areas of disfigurement. Now, in our era right now, 100 years later, we would say maybe plastic surgery could do something for them. They didn't have that option like we have right now 100 years ago. And so what she would do is she began designing individually tailored, sculpted masks that could be worn by these soldiers to disguise their facial injuries. So if they had damage on this side of their face, she would design something that could fit perfectly with the, the right side of their face and maybe help disguise some of those injuries if they lost their chin or the lo- some of the soldiers lost the whole lower half of their face. So she designed something that could create the illusion of having that portion of their face. She she wasn't working a miracle, but to these men, she was a gift from God. As she was helping them, and she treated them with dignity. They said that even the waiting room that she had, when she would try and design things and fit things for them, she made it as comfortable and as posh as possible so that these men understood that when they came in, even though the rest of the world wasn't going to treat them with respect, she was going to treat them with respect. And while they waited to be fitted and to have things designed, she wanted them to be comfortable. She wanted them to be treated well. And she helped use her talent that God had given her to bless them with a tool that made them feel much more comfortable when they would go out in public. And for many of them, even though obviously those masks didn't move or things like that, they still felt comfortable interacting in the public because of what she had done. She had shown them respect, and she had tried her best to help them. And I heard that story recently, and I was fascinated by it enough to read up on it a little bit more, because stories like this of Anna Coleman Ladd and others, when I read something like this, of somebody that will show extreme compassion for somebody with a desperate need, it reminds me of the heart of Christ, particularly when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, the heart of Christ toward outcasts that feel disrespected by everybody else. And in Luke chapter 13, you have Jesus treating this woman with respect. And he does this in multiple ways, not only by associating with her, not only by healing her, not only by confronting those who would disrespect her, but he also makes a point to call her a daughter of Abraham. Did you catch that when he said it? He calls her a daughter of Abraham. He says, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. You know, in that context, Abraham was revered. Everybody practically bragged about the fact that Abraham was the one that they had descended from. And many of those folks thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, that was a surefire guarantee that they had an, an acceptance from God. And Jesus points at her and he references her and he says, this woman is a daughter of Abraham. And so he chides the critics for being critical of treating a daughter of Abraham with respect. And he reminded them that they showed more compassion for their animals than they were showing for a fellow human being. And we're told that as Christ confronted this, that the crowd rejoiced and the others were irritated and ashamed. But Christ confronted his adversaries and showed respect to the disrespected because that's how Christ treats the outcasts. There's one other thing that I want to point out to us today in regard to this same line of thought, and that's this. Christ blessed those who could offer Him nothing in return. Look with me, if you would, as we finish up in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, verse 13 down to verse 16, we read this. It says, And they were bringing children to Him, that He might touch them. So again, speaking of Christ's treatment toward outcasts, there's one group of people that can be very easy to dismiss, very easy to disrespect, and we interact with them all the time, specifically children. And I think when you talk to children, when you interact with children, I think children can at times feel like the biggest outcasts that there are. And yet Christ showed them love. He blessed those who had nothing that they could offer Him in return. You know, when you interact with children... They don't have anything they can give you. They can certainly give you their love. They don't have anything that you could say tangible that they could give you. In many respects, when you decide to have children, what are you doing? You're signing up to give your time and your resources and your love away. And somehow you're okay with it. It's like from a selfish standpoint, this doesn't make sense. Maybe I need to do some math on that. Nope, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) And yet, what does Christ do in our hearts? He says, do this, because this is exactly what I've done for you. They have nothing to offer you in return, and yet in Christ-centered love, what do we do? We show them love, because Christ has loved us. He blessed those who were at an age um, when they could easily test the patience of others. You You have these children coming to Christ, and some people have more patience with children than others. You know, some, some people are really patient with them, some people have no patience for kids, but I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, when um, I'm trying to learn about a person, when I'm trying to assess a person's character, I always think that you, can, that you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat children. I think that you could tell a lot about a person's character by how they interact with children, how they treat children. Do they speak to children disrespectfully and dismissively, or are they kind? Can they be fun with a child? Can they be nice to a child? Can they speak to a child in such a way that the child feels glad that they interacted with that adult? Is that not what we see Christ doing in this portion of Scripture? Mark chapter 10, verse 13, and the verses following here, it tells us that the crowds were bringing their children to Jesus so that He could lay His hands on them and bless them. But the disciples were starting to get annoyed by this. And I'm sure we could picture what the scene was probably like, right? You know, you have adults and children rushing forward. You have children making a scene. You probably have some children escaping and going off in other directions. Other children just kind of blankly staring, wondering why their parent is lifting them up and trying to send them toward this other adult that they don't particularly know. And uh, in the midst of this, I, I imagine the disciples, maybe they were tired, You know, maybe they were frustrated. Who knows? Maybe they were feeling flustered by the chaos. But whatever they were feeling, they tried to stop this noisy event from proceeding. And they began to tell their parents, the 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 parents of these children, you know, take these kids away. Take them away. Give us some space. Take them away. Children are easy to chase away. They're easy to chase away. Some people have it perfected, right? It's like a science, like an art. Chase them away. I think children probably even expect adults to do that at some point. They probably expect it half the time, to just be chased away. I had an interesting experience when I was a brand new pastor. I'd started up a youth ministry at the church that I was serving, and in time it had started to grow. And it had gotten to a point where it was getting a little too big now because we had senior high and junior high all coming together. And I got to a point where I thought, all right, I really need to split this into two groups that meet on different nights. So I made the decision. I was going to split it into two groups that meet on different nights. And the one night, the older group would continue to meet at the original time, and the younger group would meet at a new time. And so that's what we did. And it was going fine, and it was going well, and it was rather enjoyable. And then the critics had to show up. And uh, I was confronted by some people that were upset because clearly uh the kids had put a mark on the wall in the sanctuary. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was like five feet up from the ground. I was like, that's not from the kids. And they're like, absolutely, it is from the kids. Somehow they got their shoes up there, and that's literally what I was told. I was like, it's five feet up. And I was trying to think, what was there? And it dawned on me, there had recently been a Christmas tree that was up against it. It was flat white paint, And it was the stuff from the Christmas tree that apparently had brushed against the wall in that spot. But of course, it was the teen's fault, right? And I just remember in that moment, I'm like, we can fuss over this stupid spot on a wall or we can rejoice over the fact that Christ sent these kids to us to hear the message of the gospel. We can criticize them, we could chase them away, or we could spend 50 cents and go like this one time and fix that spot on the stupid wall. And I remember being so annoyed, thinking, why would that matter? Why does that matter? And I think to myself, is that not the easy spot that our hearts can easily get to? Myself included. Because if I'm really honest about my own life, I can point to plenty of spots in my own life where effectively I've done the same exact thing. And I think, why do we do that? These kids are easy to chase away. Just chase them away. They have nothing to offer you. Look, all they do is break stuff and take stuff. Some. Seems like they do. Look, obviously it must be the kids that messed up the wall. In that case, guess what? It was the adults. Mic drop, right? I didn't have a mic in my hand, but I was like, wait a second. The adults did that with the Christmas tree. You guys should fix it. You're wrecking the wall, you know? But in Mark chapter 10, what does Jesus say? He says, "Let let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's good counsel for us. That's something that we would be wise to heed. Children live in a continual state of faith. Their lives and their well-being, are it's all at the mercy of the adults in their lives. So they intrinsically trust what you say, and they intrinsically have a desire to copy what they see you do. Shouldn't that also be the pattern that is just activated or active in your life and in my life as followers of Christ? Should we not want that to be the case for us, that we would listen to what Christ says, that we would trust Him, that we would remain confident in every word He speaks, and that we would copy everything that we see Him do? like he describes the heart of a child in regard to faith. Let me say this as we wrap up. Jesus loved the outcasts, and we should too. And again, keep in mind, when we're talking about outcasts, we're ultimately talking about us. We're not talking about somebody else, we're talking about us. We were the outcasts. We were distant from God. We were foreign to his promises. We were foreign to his presence. We weren't seeking to live in His presence. We wanted Him at a distance. And yet through faith in Christ, Scripture tells us we're reconciled to God. We're brought near through faith in Christ. We're made part of the eternal family of God. Jesus loved the easiest people to hate. Jesus showed respect for the disrespected. And He blessed those who could offer Him nothing in return. So when we look at scriptures like what we just looked at this morning, here we see that the heart of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is on display in all these ways that he treated the outcasts. And by faith in him, empowered by his grace, this can be the fruit that he demonstrates in your life and in my life as we have the privilege to live as his ambassadors. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for just Your goodness and your grace and your love and all the things that you show us that if we're really honest, we recognize we don't deserve. Lord, we were the outcasts. We were the people that were living at a distance from you. And we weren't even seeking you. Your word tells us we weren't looking for you. Some of us were even content to continue to live as outcasts. And yet You interjected Yourself into our lives. Lord, Your Word tells us that we were living like Your enemies. We were under Your wrath. And You actually would have been justified in hating us. And yet, in Your perfect nature, You chose to do the opposite. You are the perfection of love. And you decided to show us love. You showed us respect. You showed us compassion. You invited us to be part of your family. We have nothing that we could offer you that you couldn't have anyway. There's nothing that we have that you don't already have amply supplied. And yet you invite us to be part of your family. Even though when we come before you, what we're doing is we're taking something from you. You offer yourself to us But we're receivers. So, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you have made that the privilege that we get to experience, that we get to be recipients, receivers of your grace, knowing that we didn't deserve it, knowing we couldn't merit it. And we're grateful, Lord, for the kind of reminders that you give to us in this portion of your Word. These are good reminders for any season of our lives, but it's useful to be reminded of these things at this particular time of the year specifically so lord when we think of what you've done we pray that we would be reminded that you are our savior you are our rescuer you are our redeemer and you show love to the outcasts you take outcasts you don't leave us out there on the fringes somewhere you welcome us into your family as we trust in you jesus christ we know that we become part of your eternal family your eternal kingdom And this is all predicated on what you've come to do on our behalf. So thank you for living the perfect life for us. Thank you for taking the death and the shame that we deserved upon yourself at the cross. Thank you for rising from the grave and offering new life and your victory to all who trust in you. We're grateful for all these things, Lord. And we're grateful for the privilege to walk with you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Informal Bible Study. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, we'd invite you to stop by our website, desirejesus.com, and while you're there, be sure to check out our one-year devotional, the Desire Jesus 365-Day Devotional. It's featured very prominently on our bookstore page, and we hope it's a helpful resource to you or to anyone you choose to give it to as a gift this coming year. But that's it for us today. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week, and we look forward to catching up with you again right here next Monday. Take care.